Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 254, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. School cafeterias are about to experience a shortage of milk. We'll explain why. This is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each episode, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This episode, what is the most useful feedback you can give your students? A Stanford social psychologist and research scientist tells us. Stay with us. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by my friend, Chief Academic Officer, as well as co-host of the Classes Miss podcast, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing today? Hey, I can't complain whatsoever. I love to hear that. I was, um, you know, how you get in the uh, Instagram or YouTube rabbit hole. You ever, that yeah. happens to you, right? Mm-hmm. That happens to everyone, right? So I was in there uh, the other day, and I saw a little clip from The Tonight Show that had a nice link back to teachers. Oh. Um, there was a young comedian, and I'm going to try to cue it up here for us, but a young comedian by the name of Josh Johnson. He was on The Tonight Show. And, um, well, I'll just play the clip and let you kind of give me your opinion. High school teacher is here. The first time I ever did stand-up at the uh, high school for the talent show, he was like, I'm going to see you on The Tonight Show one day. And so I flew him out. So make sure you can see it. Mr. Ward. Where's Mr. Ward? Yeah, Dennis Ward. Yeah. Hey, Mr. Ward, he made it. He made it. That's Jimmy Fallon. Like, that's The Tonight Show. And here's this young comedian. And he's brought this teacher to The Tonight Show because uh, he inspired him, right? It immediately warmed my heart. I am a kid's teacher. I absolutely love every single one of my students, no matter what they brought to my classroom. And I run into them all the time as adults and young people. And I get just as excited to see them. And, you know, teachers get such a bad rap on on so many different levels. And oftentimes you hear adults who've succeeded in some way say, I remember when I was told I would never amount to anything. Or I remember when I was told, you know, trying to apply to these four-year universities that was too high above my ability or caliber. But this teacher told this child, I'm going to see you on The Tonight Show. That was so empowering and uplifting. And for him to pay homage and and bring him in and call him back, I mean, I'm a little emotional. It's right? wonderful. Like, I thought that was cool. I mean, because you're right. Like You don't know what's going to stick with somebody when you when you say something, when you try to motivate them. And clearly that stuck with this young man uh, enough to where he was like, I got to bring him out to the Tonight Show. You know, like that was a goal. Like he he basically created a core memory for him and goal set for him at the same time that teacher did for that student. So, yes. And I just want to say that there are Mr. Wards and Miss Wards 
all over our country. And kiddos, I if they happen to hear our podcast, I hope that they, you know, connect to the right one who will lift their spirits and encourage them to try things that are difficult, try things that are outside of their talent and gift area. At some point, you're going to land exactly where you're supposed to be. And let's just remember every profession is because of a teacher. Right. Somebody had to teach you to do what you're doing. Right. And I was actually going to go with a different story, but you're, you're segueing into another one that I have that I kind of wanted to, to touch on. And, you know, yesterday there were elections around much of the country, not all of the country, but mm-hmm. uh, Mississippi had elections. I think Virginia did. Um, yeah. Pennsylvania had elections. And um, one story that came out of it was uh, Philadelphia uh, elected its first female mayor ever. Her name was wow. Cheryl Parker. And she's also a former teacher. She had a short stint as a teacher in the 90s, a high school English teacher. Um, and we don't see enough educators in politics. In that is so awesome. And let me just go ahead and put a shout out here for her. She's probably going to have the best speeches ever. Right. You're probably <laughs> right. A former English teacher. Yeah, no doubt. And and the thing that's, there was a story, I think it was around 2020 I saw, and I don't know if they ironed this out, and I don't know how, if this applies to many states, but I know in the state of Mississippi, if you want to be a state legislator and you are collecting a pension as a retired teacher, I think you have to give up that pension yep. to mm-hmm. to then go and collect a check from the state. Like there's some sort of rule. And I don't know if that's by design or if it's an archaic well, rule or what, but it discourages I'm teachers. I say it's archaic because also, did you know there was a rule that teachers in the state of Mississippi cannot strike? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We I've mentioned that on the show before. And that one burns yeah, me you'll out. You'll lose your license. Right. And, it's and, unbelievable. And essentially, I think the way the state, if I was arguing the other side, which I'm not, but I think the state's kind of like, we look at teachers like uh, firemen or police officers, like the show must go on, right? So we're going to create this law that says teachers can't strike. But at the same time, it just completely ruins their bargaining power. And It does, but we're also not held in the same regard. As our first responders, when, you know, you say we're just like them and, and, and that we have to stay out of politics, then I would love for educators to be held in that same regard and to be considered special and mm-hmm. honored. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt they should be. Um, mm-hmm. And but also I feel like teachers have a right to collectively say, hey, yeah. we need a pay raise. And the fact that you can, I think you can even get in trouble for like talking about a strike. Like Absolutely. If, you, if you came on this podcast and you were like, yeah, I think, you know, Mississippi should band together all this educators. Like if you started saying that and, and trying to create momentum for a strike in the state of Mississippi, I think that could hurt you. It can. And we also have to be careful about being involved in in politics. So I can't really discuss politics, not just on our show here, so to speak, but um, not in my position of authority. Right. All right. Last story I got today is um, a little one where uh, this one, I mean, it's it's minor, but it's kind of funny and it's kind of not funny, but <laughs> I see you smiling. <laughs> right. I am smiling. Uh, have you guys had a milk carton shortage hit your district? Have you heard about this? I have not heard about that. Okay, well, it might be coming. So it's not a shortage of milk. It's a shortage of the actual, like, cardboard that the milk comes in. And apparently the the big supplier that, you know, hands out these cartons or sells these cartons to school districts all over the country, as well as hospitals and other places like that, just cafeterias in general, they are having trouble getting the carton. So apparently many school districts are needing to start to come up with backup plans of what they're going to serve should they not be able to get their school milk in the cafeteria. 
That is wild. Yeah. Now I need to understand why we're out of cardboard <laughs> and why we don't have some 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 options, some plan B somewhere. We can't let our babies go without their milk. Right. I know. And I, I do kind of hear understand the cardboard thing because I know my brother. You know, he has the cheesecake company. I think I've mentioned on here before, and they they uh-huh. ship their whole cheesecakes in cardboard, and that is a constant struggle for him it's like he used to get his cardboard overseas like from a company um and then it sometimes would get stuck in customs during the pandemic things was were a mess with that he now is using a different supplier but still like i think he's got this gigantic room where he's always trying to front load enough boxes to be able to package his cheesecakes and it's like you can't send out a cheesecake unless you have the carton so just that one thing can completely disrupt your your whole supply chain and uh, so i'm just completely distracted because you mentioned your brother and his cheesecake because i immediately and do not laugh i immediately went to the left and started thinking about his redfish dish as well as the shrimp and grits (laughs) (laughs) yo back at the old restaurant Yes. Yeah, yeah, no, those those are good. It was the best, but I, I just find it odd. And the distributors who provide um, all of the milk for all the school districts, especially in our area, I know that that's a major concern for them because that is a regular shipment. There is never a time when we're not ordering Anyhow, our milk. You're right. Well, I'm going to link the show notes to all three of these uh, if anybody wants to check them out. Uh, school districts, keep an eye on your milk supply. It might be running out soon. Um, well, hey, I'm going to hope there's somebody out there that's going to come up with an alternative um, you know, for that so that we can, I mean, you know, we can just be short on supply. Dr. Pepper, Coke, like we, I'm sure we can give the kids something in the place of milk, right? We got to do something. Right. Okay. All right, Christina, are you ready for today's bright idea? I'm pumped about it. Let's go. What is the most useful feedback you can give your students? Our guest in today's Brad Idea segment has been working on getting to the bottom of just that question. Camilla Griffiths and two of her colleagues did this by conducting a study of middle and high school teachers' feedback to students. Camilla is a social psychologist and research scientist. In fact, she's a Stanford-trained researcher with expertise in the science of racial inequality and bias. Camilla, welcome to Class Dismissed. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Uh, We're excited to have you here. And I guess first, I want to kind of like look at this from 30,000 feet. Um, You wrote this great article. I think it's in, is it Scientific American, right? And um, why did you and your colleagues feel a need to actually look at data about how teachers give feedback? Why was this important to you? Yeah, that's a great question. Great place to start because I think, you know, there's so many ways you could enter the world of education and try to study something to to understand it, to make it better. Um, Feedback to me feels like a really foundational piece of the education system, of the education process, of pedagogy, um, because it's really, in my mind, not just a transaction between teachers and students, but really a a space to build a relationship, to start a relationship between a teacher and a student. And there's so much research showing that having relationships with your students is one of the primary ways uh, to be an effective teacher, to have your students uh, excel, to have your students feel like you understand them and you believe in them. There's just a myriad of benefits from having sort of a solid foundation of a relationship with your teacher. And feedback felt like a really key place to do that. From my own experience as a student, Uh, The teachers that I had the best relationships with that I felt cared about me the most were the ones that gave me really honest feedback that didn't hold back any punches and that through their feedback, I came to understand, you know, this teacher really wants me to do well. 
Um, and so it felt like a really important part of the teaching experience that in my mind wasn't receiving quite enough attention in the research world, uh, specifically from the point of view of a psychologist who's trying to understand um, how expectations and you know, interracial relationships between teachers and students really play into the feedback process. So it just felt like a ripe area for, for more research and for research that was coming from the perspective of relationship building and expectation building. Were you a student when you realized that not all feedback is created equal or was it more when you got into the academic world? Yeah, um, probably a little bit of both. I think I wasn't quite thinking... Um, explicitly about inequality, but I, I did notice that that I would get feedback that looked very different from different teachers. So I would notice, you know, sometimes it was just a great job, you did this well, or, you know, rewriting that that word to, um, to give me a sense that I needed to do something different uh, versus teachers who really, I could tell they spent some time on this and they were really trying to understand where I was coming from. So I wasn't necessarily thinking about an inequality, but I had noticed the range in what was possible in feedback. And then once I started sort of, you know, putting on my researcher hat, I learned that there was actually quite a bit of, um, of evidence that not only does bias exist in the education system, but feedback is one of the places where you can see it manifesting. Okay. Can you give me an example of maybe where we would see that? Yeah. So there's a researcher at, at Rutgers, his name is Kent Harbour, and he's done a, a whole host of research since the 90s, really, on a phenomenon called the positive feedback bias. Um, so this, it sounds like it wouldn't be a bias. It's called the positive feedback bias. But what essentially they're saying is that when teachers have lower expectations of, uh, in this case, Black students is the main population that they've studied, mm-hmm. There's a there's this desire to not want to give critical feedback, and it comes from a good place, right? It comes from a place of not wanting to be or be seen as biased or prejudiced against the student. Um, if you have sort of low expectations, you are going to overcompensate by giving highly positive and less critical feedback. So you're going to, um, you know, say this is great, not give a ton of suggestions for how to change it because you want to. Um, help that student do well, but from a perspective of, I don't think that they can really do much better. So I'm just going to praise them for what they have done, Mm. what they have done well. Um, And they've done these studies in really interesting ways where they give students, they give teachers um, the same essay, just telling the teacher that it was either written by a black student or a white student. And they'll see that, you know, for the white student, they're taking the same sentence and they're asking the students questions or they're pushing the student to do something different. They're giving them criticism. But for a black student, they're they're not they're taking that same sentence and they're either praising it or they're not giving any feedback at all. Um, And so this is really comes as a detriment to the black student because they're not getting that sort of that feedback that's going to push them to grow, to learn. Um, And they're getting a misrepresentation of what their their teacher thinks of them. Um, and they're not getting the, the same opportunities as the white student in that situation. In your article in Scientific American, you guys, I don't know if it was you, but you put labels on different types of feedback, right? Like how, mm-hmm. w- go ahead and tell us the labels first. Yeah, absolutely. So we wanted to take a really scientific approach to studying feedback. And so we asked a bunch of teachers, uh, middle school and high school teachers, hundreds to give feedback on the same few uh middle school student essays. Um, And we were interested in 
encoding these, as you said, with labels that give us a sense of what the what the feedback is actually doing. So we coded things like how positively or negatively are uh, is the feedback, what kinds of language are they using? Um, and then the main thing we were putting labels on is the extent to which they were really giving students opportunities to make edits themselves, as opposed to the teacher taking things into their own hands and making edits for the students. So it's a subtle change, but one that can really be felt by students that you know has been felt by me in the past. Um, so these are things like as a, when a student has you know, made a grammatical error. It's the difference between a teacher rewriting that word or sentence to fix the, the grammar, what we would call sort of a low agency example of feedback. So they're giving the student less agency, mm-hmm. or they can write a comment that says, you know, check the check your conjugation here, check the grammar in this sentence, um, and look for look for a place where where you could fix it. Um, so it's a difference between putting the ball in the student's court versus taking uh, taking that agency away and doing it for them. Uh, and this can happen in a number of different ways. Grammar is just an example. Um, but we went looking for places where teachers were really giving students an opportunity to show that they could make the change themselves. So w- when a teacher says, hey, you know, I fixed this grammar for you, you know, done. Um, y- you called it low agency. I think, do you also refer to it as directive? Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So there's some other research that has studied this, not necessarily in the context of of race or even um, as sort of a general phenomenon of feedback, but there it's directive feedback in the sense that you are directing the student to do something without, or it's even called corrective feedback. Um, so there's a lot of different names for it. Um, and we were just taking that kind of feedback and putting it in a larger umbrella of, of feedback that takes away agency from students. Gotcha. And then what's the term you put on it when the feedback does give the student agency? Is, is it agentic? Is that what y'all call it? Yeah, exactly. So agentic feedback um, gives students really the opportunity to show that I can do this myself. And if I don't know the information, I can do the work to know what I need to do next. Uh, and obviously, this isn't, you know, the teacher taking a complete back step or back seat, but rather uh, it's them giving students the tools to be able to do it themselves. So in addition to saying, you know, check your spelling in this sentence. They can also say, you know, check out unit 2.1 um, that we covered last week to see how you might fix this uh, sentence. So it's it's not just, you know, throwing your hands up and saying the student can do this, but it's also providing the scaffolding and information that a student might need uh, to make the make the edit themselves. Okay, so I think most people listening would say, yeah, the, the agency like feedback is going to be better for the student. I guess, did your research back that up? Yeah. So I think sometimes sometimes the, the research that can be most useful is the most intuitive because it doesn't take a lot to, to understand why it might work. But yes, that is what we find. Um, so we, um, in addition to collecting feedback from teachers and labeling it with different kinds of, um, of labels for what it what it means, we also then took that feedback and showed it to a new group of students um, and asked them, okay, if you received this feedback on an essay of yours, how would you feel? What would you, what, how much effort do you think it would take to implement this feedback? Uh, how much do you think you would learn and improve your essay? And across the board, what we find is that students are saying that they would, it would take more effort to implement. So that's important to note here. It's not that this is easy. Implement by the better. student or the teacher or both? The, sorry, the student, um, 
noted when they are reading this feedback that is more agentic from from teachers. They're saying that it'll take more. It would take more effort to implement. Um, so it's not just easier to do, um, but that they would learn more and that they would be able to improve the essay more, the more agentic that the feedback was. And importantly, one of the main outcomes that we were interested in was the extent to which this feedback communicates to students that the teacher believes in them. So as I noted at the beginning, I'm really um I'm really interested in the extent to which teachers and students can build relationships through feedback mm. and that teachers can communicate sort of high expectations, which a whole host of research suggests is really good for students when they know their teacher has high expectations of them. And agentic feedback does seem to do that as well. It communicates, or at least the students perceive, if I, if I got feedback that looked like this, that was more agentic, I would believe that my, stu- my teacher thought I could improve and could do better. Um, which feels like a, um, a really important piece of feedback that hadn't previously been been evidenced. Yeah, I don't know about you, but me hearing you say that, like I get excited and it's because, you know, a lot of these things, like you said, we, we, we thought it would go this way, but I don't know that everyone realized like, okay, the students will probably like the teacher better if they give the student agency. Is that, that's what I'm hearing you say, right? Yeah, and I don't, you know, I think probably um, liking the teacher or um, having a better relationship with the teacher is is a consequence of this. It's not the immediate, I think, effect. I think the immediate effect is, you know, this teacher believes in me. This teacher knows or thinks that I can improve. They're giving me this opportunity because they think that I can can do it, that I can take them up on it. Mm-hmm. And that, in so much research, has shown that that belief for, on the student's perspective is just so important because it's the key to, you know, motivation. I'm going to try harder if I think my teacher believes in me. I um, am going to invest myself more in this class if I think that, you know, someone is is out there caring about how I do and is out there believing that I can do better. And that's particularly true for students of color or students from marginalized backgrounds who are accustomed to, you know, worrying that their teacher is biased or that they don't believe in them because of their identity. And so this sort of belief that my teacher can, can, you know, believe in me or has high expectations of me is particularly powerful for students who don't have that belief off the bat. As you were doing the study, was there anything that surprised you? Did it surprise you that students wanted this type of feedback or was that kind of your hypothesis? That was definitely the hypothesis. I think what surprised me was that, you know, we actually, what we were expecting at first was that teachers would deliver more agentic feedback to black students, or sorry, less agentic feedback to black students, that there would be a disparity um, just based on other research in the extent to which teachers were delivering this feedback to black students and white students. And actually, we didn't see that across a couple different samples of teachers, that the rate of giving agentic feedback was was equal across white and black students. But what we did find was that black students were more affected by it. So they they had across the board significantly better perceptions of and reactions to agentic feedback than their white peers. And from what I was saying earlier, you know, that makes sense because it is really counter to perhaps their expectations of what a teacher might give. Um, And so that was a little surprising to us because we were expecting maybe a disparity on both ends of that, you know, where teachers were less likely to give it, but it was also more valuable for black students. But actually the disparity, at least in the samples that we collected, wasn't there in the delivery or the, the rate of delivery of agentic feedback, but more so in sort of its impact. When you were looking at the numbers of directive 
and agentic feedback. Mm-hmm. What's kind of the percentage? Did you did you have that? Was it like 50-50 or 60-40 or what? Um, so I don't know that rate off the top of my head, but I will say, you know, we, we came up with this label for it, but I I should definitely say we didn't come up with this concept. Teachers have been doing this for a long time Mm -hmm. and we were simply capturing it and putting a name on it and in an attempt to do that show sort of, okay, when you do this, here's how it lands on students. Um, and, and I do think that the goal of this is to encourage teachers to do more of this. Um, and I, I'm very aware of the limitations of doing this 100% of the time. And, and that's why I think, you know, it's very important with any any research that it's not gonna, going to apply 100% of the time. So I think some situations where it's not necessarily the best direction to go in is at the very, you know, before you've done any teaching. So this feedback really works best when students have a foundation, right, of, of writing. So it's agentic feedback is probably not going to be effective if the student doesn't know the basics of how to construct a sentence or the basics of spelling, because then it's just going to leave them frustrated, right? If you're Mm -hmm. saying, oh, fix the spelling, but the student has no foundation for how to do that. And the teacher isn't providing that that foundation to begin with. So that's a a context where I don't think agentic feedback is necessarily um, going to be effective. Um, I also think that it's most effective at the, you know, earlier in the school year while you're, because I believe this is sort of a relationship building mechanism, um, delivering this kind of feedback early in a relationship with a student allows for later in the school year, the the student now understands, yeah, this teacher believes in me, this teacher has high expectations for me. And so if I receive a little bit, if I receive criticism or something that isn't so positive, Um, then it doesn't land as hard. And I'm not as likely to take that as a sign that my teacher might be biased, which other research has shown can happen, especially for students of color, um, that criticism can be a sign that that the teacher is is biased. Um, And then I also think that agentic feedback can be seen as as taking more time to implement um, because, you know, you are trying to take an individual approach to each student and we we know teachers are, are overworked and um, and often overburdened. Um, and so um, I think that there's a way, and this is sort of some of the direction that I'm hoping to take with this research, to, um, to have shorthand for how to implement this feedback that is still personal. So, you know, for example, there's there 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 may be a set of questions that is really effective to ask students that is an agentic way to give feedback, but you don't have to make it up every time. So can you tell me more about this? Can you expand on this thought? Can you check your spelling here? Providing maybe a list of starter questions or prompts for teachers to provide feedback that is more agentic, that doesn't require them to, you know, reinvent the wheel every time, um, I think could be a good place to start to, to reduce some of the burden on providing this kind of feedback. Right. I like that. It's kind of just giving them an arsenal to work with. Because because like right. you said, it does take more time for the teachers. It, it takes more time for the students in response. Mm-hmm. Um, is there... You kind of said this, but is there like a low hanging fruit? Is there an area where teachers should be looking out for opportunities to give this type of feedback? I mean, is it simply just in in writing or is there something more specific that kind of jumps out? Yeah. So I think writing is the domain that we started this research in. It was the sort of most obvious place where feedback gets given on a regular basis. But you could totally imagine these concepts applying in other in other classes and other domains, you know, in math, in in, in like a science report, a lab report, anywhere where the student has to take 
your feedback and implement it for the next version of something. So if it's a, a problem set or a worksheet for math, you know, they make a mistake in their long division, not redoing it for them, but saying, hey, ch- double check this step of the long division, you know. Um, so I think there's ways for this to be applied across the subject areas. But in writing, I think one low hanging fruit, as you as you suggested, is just looking for times where your instinct is just to rewrite the thing or do the thing for the student and to use that as an opportunity to think, okay, what can I do here that is this, that will give me the same result without me stepping in with as much of a heavy hand? Um, because those are really opportunities that take away learning opportunities for students um, and that they can be an easy sort of shift in your mindset of what feedback looks like from a corrective approach um, where you are correcting the student's work for them to more of a suggestive or um, sort of a lighter hand um, in providing feedback. In, in your professional career, do you still work with students? I do. Yeah, I do um, workshops and some some teaching and some um, mostly mentoring with, with grad students at the moment. Um, and I do. I think about this all the time. I actually... Uh, actually not even in a professional capacity right now. It's bled over into most of my life. Um, <laughs> yeah, like I have a little, a little sister who's getting ready to apply to college. Um, and I have been thinking a lot about how to best help her through that process without <laughs> taking away too much agency because I could certainly see myself, you know, uh, in her, her essay sort of, you know, taking a red pen to it. Um, but I think that it's a, a real opportunity to, to help her, uh, really grow and do it herself because it's such a pivotal pivotal moment for her. So it does it does bleed into a lot of the ways I think about mentoring and uh, and teaching. Yeah, I love that. So like even talking to family members and all that, you're just kind of like always nudging people in the direction, but not necessarily giving them the answers. I guess is what you're saying. Yeah, and I, like I said earlier, I think that there's there are times where a heavier hand is useful, and and I think one of those is when you have a really strong relationship and the person knows that you care and the person like knows that you you've already built that foundation then you know and or in like a later draft of something maybe there've been two rounds of feedback and uh you you really want to just give them line edits on spelling that in that case in the first few rounds maybe you've you've asked the questions you've nudged in the direction without doing it for them but in that last phase once that sort of message has been communicated, it's not harmful, you know, to to do those more directive edits. So I don't think this is necessarily the case that you should never correct that spelling error or never uh, take that heavier hand. But it's just in the in a in a setting where the concern is not necessarily there that you'll sort of take the the wind from out of someone. I'm not a psychologist, so I'm gonna and eloquently try to describe this, but it's almost reminds me of like when you, when you go through school and you ask somebody like, who was, who was your favorite teacher? And and sometimes it's that teacher who, you know, Oh, Miss Smith, she was so hard and she challenged me. Yeah. Um, but you know, and I, and I, she drove me nuts at the time, but if I look back on it, she was my favorite teacher. It's kind of like that. It's like, you got to push back against the students sometimes. And th- while they may not like it, I think, they may ultimately like you better for it in the end. Am I am I wrong and kind Absolutely. of? Absolutely no. I think that that's actually that's exactly the the prototypical teacher that I was thinking of when I started this. And actually, in um, presenting this work for my dissertation, um, I actually uh, 
thought about the teacher I had in in undergrad who who gave the harshest feedback <laughs> that really really hurt at the time mm-hmm. but I knew that he was give, he and he would say explicitly I'm doing this because you know like I want you to be a better writer at the end of this and it it was hard but it really did help and again I I don't want to suggest that this has to be, you know, mutually exclusive from praise or from affirmation. You can give agentic feedback and also say, I really like the way you did this. Can you also think about a way to rewrite this topic sentence? Or can you also think about a way to add more color to this paragraph? You know, so there's that you can combine them. I think the thing that is dangerous is if you're just doing praise without sort of more constructive feedback. Um, And you know, I think there's there's definitely ways to to combine those so that it's not just sort of the the heavy hand and the criticism uh, that's just harsh. Right. I mean, you think students need to hear sometimes like I'm I'm pushing back and I'm challenging you because I believe in you. Like, I mean, that can absolutely. go a long way, right? Yeah, absolutely. And there's actually really some of my favorite work that actually really got me motivated to go into psychology uh, is work. It's It's called Wise Feedback. And it's the concept that Um, So what they did is they actually studied how criticism was received. And I think I alluded to this earlier, but how criticism is received um, by students, marginalized students, um, all students, uh, when it's just on its own and when it's it's added to a frame that explicitly when the teacher says, I'm giving you this feedback because I have high standards for you and I believe that you can meet them. Um, And adding that frame to the same piece of of feedback to the same piece of criticism improved students likelihood to rewrite their essay mm-hmm. to perform better on the essay to perform better in the class more more broadly so it's this idea that like the framework with which you receive the feedback is really going to shift the way you read it the way you perform in the class the way you see the teacher and that's going to be particularly true for students who are not likely to believe that their teacher is going to have high expectations for them. So what I think this feedback is doing is it's doing that same thing just more implicitly without the the words explicitly saying, I believe in you. I think you can do better. I have high standards. It's, it's saying all of that, but through action rather than through words. I love that. And this is why I love having psychologists on the show, because everything that you all study, it does really bleed a lot into, you know, teachers working with people and students and so forth. So we always get good tidbits. Um, if anybody wants to read this article in full, I'll put this link in our show notes uh, to scientificamerican.com. Uh, Camilla, thank you so much. You guys working on anything else really big that would affect K through 12 education? Um, yeah, so another w- line of work that I'm work that I'm working on right now is still with teachers. We're actually looking at teacher well-being. Um, you know, it's it's right. been especially a topic of concern since the pandemic. But well before that, we were really interested in how well-being varies across different school contexts and ad- across different teacher identities. Um, there's there's unfortunately not too much research that tries to understand how teachers of color might experience the same school context differently than their white counterparts, especially sort of on a na- on a national level. Um, and so we're doing a lot of sort of national surveys and um, archival research to try to understand what are the sort of sources of different levels of well-being for teachers of color and what are some of the strategies that might work to uplift all teachers. I love it. Well, uh, again, thank you so much for, for enlightening us with this. Uh, are you ready for today's pop quiz? Yes, let's have it. All right. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Wow. Um, 
I would say English language arts uh, with a curriculum and a book list that represents all students. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? That is a contentious question right now. <laughs> um, I'd say, yeah, the ability to talk about the issues in society that are most pressing um, and that don't have a clear answer, the ability to sit in discomfort. What does every child deserve? An equal chance at knowledge and at relationships. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Navigating the political climate. What's the best gift to give an educator? Compensation and time. Which teacher changed your life? It's a long list. Um, I would say Mr. Nguyen, my high school IB history teacher, and Dr. Smith, uh, the director of my undergraduate major. So what did they do that was different? Well, they, they were both definitely harsh feedback uh, givers, but they, yeah, they pushed me. They, they pushed me, but they also met with me one-on-one -on -one to make sure that I was up for the challenge and that I was, you know, progressing and not falling behind. So they gave me, they gave me attention that communicated to me that their harshness was worth it and that it came from a place of of care um, and of belief. Love that. Make sure you let them know if you still can. Um, and last question, which book did you read, love, and would like to recommend to our audience? I recently read An American Marriage by Tayari Jones, which I loved um, and have been recommending to anyone who, uh, who I'm talking to about books. What's it about? It is about a couple uh, in Atlanta um, who, they're a young couple and the husband and the couple, they're recently married, uh, gets wrongfully arrested. Um, and it's sort of about how they they navigate their relationship uh, through this, this sort of tumultuous traumatic experience and through the backdrop of this romantic relationship also is sort of a... a um, commentary on the criminal justice system and how it can sort of affect families, but it does it in this really subtle, soft-handed way because you're you're learning about that through the lens of of this couple and of this love story and of this relationship. Yeah. So it does a really nice job um, mixing sort of narrative with commentary. Sounds great. Well, again, uh, Camilla Griffiths, uh, we appreciate you joining us. Again, that article's in Scientific American. It's titled, Useful Feedback More Than Praise Helps Students Flourish. And we'll have that link to our show notes. Thank you so much for joining us on Class Dismissed. Thank you so much, Nick. This was a really lovely discussion. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismiss. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed. <laughs>